Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is the interview that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. Adam Tooze is a Columbia University professor, author of, of Crashed in the Past, which really tracked what we saw uh, a past a couple years in terms of the economy post-crisis. Now he comes out with Shutdown, how COVID shook the world's economy. And Adam, in some ways, you are one of the preeminent, if not the preeminent historians of fast-moving current financial history. And I'm wondering how difficult it was for you to get your arms around the shutdown and reopening that still has beguiled economists to this day? Um, it's a really tricky problem. I mean, no one should kid around about this. Writing history in real time is, is, is a risky kind of business. I don't expect this book to last forever. But I guess what I did was to start with the main event. And the main event is a news story that I think the general public is just not aware of to the extent that they need to be. And it goes directly to the market you were just talking about, the U.S. Treasury market. That's really what we need to put across, right? The incredible seismic tremor that we saw in the most important financial market in the world, the anchor of safe assets globally, the U.S. Treasuries, which were in chaos in March in 2020. And the book, in a sense, is an effort to think through from there the stabilization effort that, that succeeded to an extent, but also its limits. So that's kind of the, the shtick of the book is to say, right, well, this is one dimension of the crisis we could get our hands around. Um, what about the rest? Well, let's elaborate on that. I mean, what do, do does the public perhaps not appreciate with respect to the seismic shift that we saw in March of 2020 in terms of the ramifications of what the Federal Reserve did? Well, the money was going the wrong way, right? In a panic like that in 2008, you really want the money to go somewhere safe. And the place that we think of as safe is the 10-year treasury, 30-year treasury, American government IOUs. And the problem in March is that even those were selling and then the market stopped functioning. So the bid-ask spreads blew out. You basically couldn't liquidate the thing that you count on as being absolutely liquid in your portfolio. And that then unleashes a chain reaction. And frankly, if that had you know fully burned through to the extent it was threatening to do we don't really have a map for that for that terrain and you get a sense i think of just the sheer panic on the buy side i mean the fed steps in and by the end of the month early april they've bought five percent of that crucial market on a, at a pace at a rate that you know, it vastly exceeds what we saw in 2008 professor we've had a massive policy response in the last 18 months you know that, I know that, we all know that. How would you characterize the compare and contrast between what the United States has done and what China did? It's very surprising this time around, right? Because if you go back to 2008, China's the big actor, the surprise actor. It really turns the tables on the Western world with a giant fiscal stimulus, which as we all know in China is a kind of weird blend of bank lending and regular fiscal policy. This time around, because the Chinese contained the epidemic so much earlier, and because also they got a giant debt you know, bubble to worry about, think about Evergrande, um, the Chinese response is more muted. They're more successful, if you like, in containing the epidemic. The US, on the other hand, is hyperactive and not just on the monetary side, of course, on the fiscal side, too, which is then leading to that huge supply of bonds that you were referring to just a minute ago. Is there a blueprint here, Adam, for how we deal with the next crisis? And can we really compare China with the United States, an authoritarian regime with a democracy? 
We have to find our own way forward in the West. I really think those comparisons are unhelpful. We need to understand that China's in the world. Our biggest single mistake in January and February last year was to imagine it was their problem. They were going to have to solve it their way. It didn't concern us. You know, what was happening in Wuhan had no implications for JFK. Disastrous miscalculation. As to the actual solutions, we have to do it our own way because the systems are so radically different. And what we've really got to think about is how we as it were, multiply the kinds of chains of competence which we did display, think about the vaccine development program, think about the financial policy response to other areas, which is where we really signally lacking in the ability to organize a collective reaction to a disaster like this. Adam, when you talk about the monetary policy response in your book, you call it an emergency action of the most radical kind and pose the question, what was now normality? Can we ever return to normal monetary and fiscal policy, or is the role of central banks now forever changed? That was a rhetorical question, bad academic habit. Um, <laughs> I, I think probably not. Like That's really the message of the book is, I mean, the final line of the book is literally, we ain't seen nothing yet. That I think is the crucial takeaway from this. I mean, this wasn't even a bad pandemic by the standards of what the virologists and epidemiologists say is out there coming our way. And we know the kind of cosmic macro risks of climate change and how complicated those are going to be to cope with. I think we have to let go of that idea of the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s independent central bank with a clear separation of fiscal and monetary policy. That isn't our world. It hasn't been our world since 2008. And even in 2019, think back before the crisis, it wasn't obvious how either the ECB or the Fed could really pull back. You know, they, they could raise interest rates a little bit, but then we know how ginger they got about that and how they had to pull back. The ECB was doing mini QE even in the fall of 2019. Adam, you also talk about how 2020 was a year of acceleration in, in so many trends. And you talk about how it's just really a moment in the process of escalation and the great acceleration is going to continue. Looking at that from a labor market lens, have we arrived sooner at structurally lower participation? Specifically, I'm thinking of the U.S. economy, but in general. I do think the U.S. has a particular problem here. It's a little bit standout. If you compare the U.S. to other similar advanced economies, really bizarre inversions of historic chains with Japanese female labor market participation trending above that of the U.S. There are, I think, some real issues. American society has to have a long, hard look at itself and think about the kind of politics that would change this, because this is directly tied up with the social justice piece, with the racial justice piece. The low participation rates that show up in these, as it were, cold numbers for low participation, especially of men in prime age, are really a symptom of social dysfunction. This is an issue that has to be addressed through things like the criminal justice system, through education, through the rollout of high quality vocational training for a whole sector of the population. That's, I think, where those solutions have to be found. Well, to tie this all together, Adam, when you say you ain't seen nothing yet, are you talking about perhaps uh, bond buying by the Federal Reserve? Are you talking about negative interest rates? Or are you talking about essentially a combination of everything that comes together, basically in modern monetary theory on the fiscal side, uh, working in tandem with the Federal Reserve? This is what I call a polycrisis. It's all of those things. But the really harsh lesson that this crisis taught us is that printing the checks is really the easiest part of this. The MMT folks are right in a sense that we can afford anything we can actually do. But the problem is 
actually doing the things we need to do, figuring out how to do the infrastructure, figuring out how to make public works work, figuring out how to do adequately scaled vaccine programs and organizing the politics around that because actually doing things in a society that's complex like in the United States depends on functional politics. Adam, let's tie this one up and put a bow on it. You and I have just talked about the different economic and political systems to address this crisis, China going one way, the United States going another. For a long, long time, we talked about China becoming more like the West. And I think what surprised me personally, and I'd love to wrap things up with your view on this, is how much some countries in the West are starting to behave like China. I look to Australia every single morning almost in shock with some of the things that they're discussing and the things that they're doing. Adam, what's your response, your reaction to being to what has happened in the West? and how some of these countries have responded, maybe more in the traits of an authoritarian regime than maybe one you'd expect from a democracy. I do think we have to reckon with this. It's, it's a trend that is, I agree, extremely alarming. We've all accepted prohibitions and restrictions on our activities that are just would have been unthinkable 18 months ago. The fact that we're not even in the same studio, for instance, would have been very surprising to most people. And I think for us, the answer may be through politics, it may be through law. If you look at the track record of 2020, the magic bullet here, the thing that really gets us out of jail is technology. And I don't say that glibly, I say that not in the sense, if you like, of some sort of techno-optimist booster, but as a kind of desperate last resort. That is the one thing that worked for us. And so really, I think the question's got to be, how serious are we about that science push? Because right now, if you look at the R&D spending figures, we're not even in the ballpark, in the order of magnitude that would be necessary and that would indicate that we were serious about these problems, be it climate, be it pandemic risk. We need to be spending hundreds of billions of dollars. When you say that, you realize, I don't even quite know how you would do that. Yeah. That's our problem. How do we scale up these pipelines? Professor, such a good final point, and let's catch up again soon. Really enjoyed it. Adam Tews there of Columbia University, professor and author of Shutdown, How COVID Shook the World's Economy. Running history as we're still running history. Megan Green joins us now, Harvard Kennedy School Senior Fellow. Megan, it's been a while, but the story hasn't changed. In fact, the only thing I can think of that has changed is that we were all waiting for September and now seemingly we're all waiting for 2022. What's your take on things? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the big question remains whether there's going to be inflation and it, it, sustained inflation or not. And that question hasn't been remotely answered. There are data points supporting both sides of that story. We were all hoping a couple months ago that come September, kids would go back to school. We'd all go back to the office. Events would happen in person again. We'd be traveling again. And that, that's clearly not happening. So unfortunately, I think we're going to have to wait a bit longer. Um, and, and ride out this Delta variant wave to see uh, what the fundamentals really look like. Megan, we spent the last couple of weeks having this discussion with economists who have all basically said, I stress all, perhaps the consensus is that this is a recovery delayed and not derailed. But Peter Chia raised an important question about 10 minutes ago on this program as to whether the demand right now and the job openings in America, which are sky high, do stay that way into next year. And the longer they're left unfilled, that perhaps they do start to drift away and disappear altogether, Megan. You're an economist. What would your take be on that particular dilemma at the moment? Yeah, look, I, I think that it depends entirely on the virus, as all things have for the past year and a half. Um, but I don't see us going back to shutting down the economy the same way we had before, in which case demand shouldn't wane as significantly as some people fear. Um, I think the much bigger concern is the supply constraint 
on workers. Um, we saw that in the last jobs report. A lot of workers didn't want to go out and get jobs because they were concerned about the Delta variant. Um, and, and that fed through into wage increases, which aren't, which aren't necessarily a bad thing, um, but they do become a, a concern if they turn into a wage price spiral. I don't think that's happening yet. Average hourly earnings were up pretty significantly, but average weekly earnings were down a bit because hours have cut. So you need both uh, earnings and hours to increase for it to maybe start to creep into a wage price spiral. That being said, companies don't have the same pricing power that they used to. Workers don't have the same power that they used to negotiating power for wages. And so I just don't see that creeping in. Megan, how do you view the recent slowdown, the recent disappointments that we've seen in economic data? Is this simply a result of the Delta variant and we'll see renewed growth later on in the year, renewed momentum? Or is this something different, as Pete Shear was talking about? Look, so from the very start of this pandemic, I've suggested the recovery might look like a Nike swoosh with a zigzag on the on the end of it. Um, and I think we're seeing a bit of that zigzag um, like we did previously with shutdowns and reopening. So I think a big piece of it is the Delta variant, but I've also thought we'd get this bounce back and then a long, hard slog. And I think that might be creeping in as well. So we've had kind of the brunt of the bounce back. We might get a bit more as we end up on the other side of this variant wave. Um, but of course, new variants might come out as well. So I think it's a bit of both, not to give you a typical economist two-handed answer. <laughs> well, but then there's this other question about the supply chain disruptions, which you mentioned. And one of the biggest port operators came out over the weekend and said, actually, the problem is there's just too much consumption, that people just are buying too much stuff, and that's fueled by the stimulus checks that they've gotten. Do you think that that ultimately will be the solution, that people will have to buy less stuff, which is exactly what the economy does not necessarily want, or certainly uh, nations do not want to see? because they want this momentum. I don't think that's the concern, actually. I think when demand is there, then companies do tend to invest and, and ramp up the supply chain. So I think that's much more likely than that consumers have to just consume less. less. We might see an increase in prices, and we have seen an increase in prices in the meantime. But again, I think that is a question of sorting out some of these supply chain constraints. Um, but I think that's the piece that will shift, not the consumption side. Well, Megan, if you look at the bond market and the steeper curve today, it might be indicating that the market thinks that the Fed is going to let inflation run too hot for too long. Is there a risk that the Fed pushes out action too far? Yeah, it could. I'm, I'm not at all worried about it. I mean, the Fed has undershot its target for so incredibly long that it's going to have to overshoot for a while. And, and as I've highlighted, I think there are a number of big structural drivers um, that have, have produced disinflationary forces on the economy. Things like market concentration, lower worker power, digitalization, automation, they've all been turbocharged in this pandemic and, and they're keeping upward pressure off of wages and prices. So I'm not worried that inflation is, is going to run away and that the Fed's going to have to go ahead and, and catch up like it did in the 1970s. I don't think we're facing the same environment then. I also don't think bond yields will stay up for that long. I think we are very much stuck in this lower for longer world. The one thing that could change that is if we get all this stimulus and it is used for productive public investment, in which case that's a great thing, right? That will fundamentally increase the long run neutral rate. Um, that would mean that we have much more room in terms of monetary policy uh, maneuvers in the next downturn that would boost productivity growth. And so that would be nothing but positive. Where is the neutral rate now, Megan? What is our star? <laughs> 
I mean, it's like describing the smell of coffee. Nobody really knows. Um, I, you know, it has been incredibly low for decades now. There are disagreements on how to measure it. Um, I would say it's it's slightly above zero. And it may have increased a bit because of the digitalization and automation um, during this pandemic, as I mentioned before. But I think the brunt of an acceleration in productivity growth and there, therefore an increase in R-Star um, will have to happen off the back of massive infrastructure spending plans, investments in human capital. And we think those might be coming, but none of it has been fully legislated yet. So we're still going to have to see. And again, this, this won't be an immediate effect. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a bit of a slow burner. So it might take a while uh, for that to feed through into productivity growth and a higher long run neutral rate. And Megan, let's ramp up the coverage going into the ECB. Is that a live meeting? It's a live meeting insofar as I think the ECB may well announce that they're going to slow down the, the previously accelerated purchase of assets under the PEP program. It's not a live meeting in terms of a fundamental shift in the ECB's thinking, though. Inflation is really high for the Eurozone. I would imagine the ECB is celebrating that. They've done an even worse job of hitting their inflation target than the Fed has over the past 15 years. And so I don't think that will, will represent a shift in ECB thinking or a concern that they actually need to go ahead and, and pull away monetary accommodation quickly. I think it's just a reflection of higher inflation. Um, I think it's probably appropriate. They had earlier this year um, agreed to buy more assets every month than they had expected. And they're just ramping that down a little bit. I don't think that they'll suggest that they'll continue to ramp down those purchases. And I don't think that they'll suggest that the PEP program, which is currently due to end in March 22, uh, will end then. I think they'll keep that off the table in the discussion at their next governing council meeting. So you think that basically this is a bluff, the uh, ECB members who have been coming out and saying it might be time to start at least talking about tapering as a result of the inflation rate? Yep, I think it's this is a tweak that we might see if they go ahead and do this. And, and I don't think this fundamentally means that the ECB is thinking about inflation or economic growth any differently than they have been. Megan Green, always good to catch up. It's been too long. Megan Green there of the Harvard Kennedy School, the senior fellow. This is the day in the life of Matt Miller. Matt, I'm not even <laughs> sure we can call this a day at work for you. Good morning, Matt. Well, you know what? If you love your job, then you can't call it work, Ooh. Jonathan. Oh. I am <laughs> I having a fantastic too, time. It's my first time back at an auto show since March of 2019. So I'm, I'm happy to be back in my element. But this show is less about cars and much more about tech than it ever has been before. I'm talking here with Cristiano Amon. He is the CEO of Qualcomm. Um, Cristiano, it's great to talk to you because... All of the automaker CEOs I've spoken to over the past two days have been focused on chips. You must feel like um, the most invited dinner guest. Uh, how, how is it going with your business, especially considering the bottleneck, the supply chain issues that we hear so much about the last couple of days? Well, no question, chips are important. Uh, you know, we, we're very excited in general. It's not just because of the importance of chips in the current situation. Car companies are becoming technology companies, and uh, and that's why Qualcomm is here. Uh, automotive is one of the fastest-growing business for us. We just uh, announced the last earnings call. We have over $10 billion of automotive dedicated revenues in the backlog. It's over a billion dollars uh, of revenue in this fiscal year, and uh, we're partnering with the automotive companies across all domains of transformation, connecting the car to the cloud, the whole in-car experience, and of course, 
uh, autonomy in ADAS. Very exciting time for Qualcomm. I know your uh, chipsets are being used in Ducati motorcycles. I've uh, been able to experience the first blind spot detection um, as well as automated cruise control on a motorcycle, so that's quite cool. In terms of the broader industry, um, the slowdown seems to be lasting longer than had been expected. And CEOs are telling us six months to 12 months, pro probably deep into 2022 until it gets sorted. How is it with Qualcomm? Well, let's, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, there is a new reality across the board that the percentage of digital component of the economy is higher. I think we all saw the pandemic accelerated digital transformation in many enterprises, and the automotive industry wasn't immune to that. So we're actually excited about the opportunity. This demand is here to stay. Of course, we're short in all uh, technology across our industry, but the good news, uh, you know, we put our scale to work. We have been investing with our suppliers in new capacity, and we expect material supply improvements as we get at the end of this calendar year. So we're gonna enter 2022 with a much more balanced supply-demand equation. Can I ask you about um, some M&A, your competitor, NVIDIA, uh, wants to buy ARM for $40 billion. The FT reporting today that regulators are concerned NVIDIA isn't going to allow everyone equal access to ARM chip designs. And why would they if they're paying $40 billion for it, right? Um, what are your thoughts on the possibility of a less open ARM um, climate here. Look, we've been very consistent in our position about this, as well as many other companies. There are leader, uh, you know, uh, implementers in, uh, of ARM technology. ARM already won. ARM won on mobile, um, mobile devices, the CPU is ARM. Automotive is moving to ARM. Computers, it's an ARM. The data center is moving to ARM. So ARM has been quite successful. And because it was an independent company, that was able to rely on the collection of R&D investments of this broad ecosystem. Arm's a great company, we love an independent arm, we think that is the reason for its success, and that's what the industry needs in the future. We'll continue to believe an independent arm is a better solution for everyone. Well, what happens then if NVIDIA gets control of the company? Aren't you concerned that they would limit your access to arm designs? Look, at the, at the end of the day, we trust that the regulators are going to take this serious. And, uh, and uh, as digital, as we talked about earlier in the interview, as digital is now important for every industry, we need to have a competitive, an open, and a, and a transparent ecosystem, especially if anybody has a dominant position on the instruction set like Armand does. i got to ask you about China as well. Um, starting a few months ago, regulators in China uh, we're changing the rules from FinTech um, to DD to video games. Every couple of days, it seems like there's a new set of rules in uh, China tech. How does Qualcomm work in that kind of environment? Look, I, I, I think I have something else to say. Our China business has been great. We have uh, an, a fast-growing, a stable China business. Uh, the number of partners in China for Qualcomm is increasing. We always been, you know, partnering with them in the mobile industry. Right now, we saw, you know, companies in China like Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo are growing with the 5G transition. Xiaomi just became the number two, uh, you know, cell phone, a smartphone manufacturer in the world. But on Alto, we now have 10 customers in China. So the number of partners in Qualcomm continue to expand. I think we're very fortunate to have a relationship with China that may be a model of what stability looks like. We participate in growth in advanced technology. 
the China respect intellectual property of Qualcomm or, or you know, our patents or license to all Chinese companies, and we're generating growth uh, for us and for Chinese partners, and we expect that to continue. In terms of the broader global growth picture, this rebound has been hampered a little bit by um, the resurgence of the Delta variant. How does it look to you? Look, uh, we are fortunate for being the technology uh, space. You know, what the pandemic did by, by, you know, work from anywhere, you know, the enterprise transformation of the home, and then the acceleration of digital transformation because the companies want to connect their assets has created a boon for technology companies. And uh, we all want uh, us to get out of this pandemic. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's way overdue for us to get out of the pandemic. So happy to be here and seeing a lot of people. But the reality is some of those technology transformation are here to stay. Connectivity is becoming essential. And, uh, you know, we're con gonna continue doing Teams and Zooms and those type of meetings for a long time. All right, Cristiano, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Cristiano Amon, the CEO uh, here at, of Qualcomm at the Munich Auto Show, Jonathan, talking to us about sticky technology um, transformations that we saw during the pandemic, talking about hopefully some relief in the chip space by the end of the year, as well as um, being content with their position in China. Hey, Miller, good to see you, buddy. Great work, as always. Lisa, not lost on anyone the importance of talking to a chip maker at an auto meeting. How much are we looking at the actual headline number? How much are we looking at the revisions in the three-month average, as you mentioned, which still show a pretty decent picture? You call it the best because the guy who made it is coming up next. It's Jim O'Sullivan, TD yes. Securities Chief Absolutely. US Macro Strategist. Jim, Jim Lisa calls it the best. I'll go with the least worse. Oh, 400K. Jim, what did you see that others didn't, and do you think it will persist? Um, well, yeah, I'd say it's the, the least worst as well. <laughs> and the goal, our goal is to be the least worst. Um, the, the, in terms of leading up to it, I would say the daily home-based numbers in particular have been on the weak side. Um, and certainly that was consistent with, with pretty, pretty sharp slowing in, in the leisure and hospitality category in particular, which has been up almost 400,000 in each of the previous two months. So I mean, it does look like that sector slowed pretty, pretty sharply. I mean, there was a lot of question and debate about employment in, in, in state and local government. And certainly the start of the new school year is a bit of a wild card. And that's going to be an issue next month for September again. But um, certainly the, the weight of evidence was that there had been significant slowing. Now, 400,000 estimate, even 235, of course, by pre-COVID standards would be pretty strong. But, I mean, it, it does look like the days of 900,000 plus are, are gone. Jim, you know what the equity bulls did as soon as those numbers came out? They said, this is a blip you can look through. From your standpoint, your perspective, is this something we can look through or the beginning of something we need to pay attention to? Um, well, I think, I mean, it was unrealistic probably to expect that we're going to get 900,000 a million per month for, for an extended period. So I think there, there is clearly a downshift here. Now, that said, monthly numbers do jump around a lot. There's a lot of challenge with seasonal adjustment. There's even a bit of a tendency for the August numbers to be revised up later. And um, I mean, that said, I mean, do we see anything in the last couple of weeks to suggest at this point that September is going to be a lot better? No. And um, I mean, we are assuming in our forecast that like on an extended basis for the next six months, we're more like 400,000 a month or, or thereabouts, four to five, and better than 235. But at this point, I can't say there's any hard evidence that September is going to be better. So does that support this idea of a slower slowdown or a more sustained slowdown than perhaps people had been expecting? Are you also downgrading your full year GDP forecasts? 
And well, it's not just the payroll numbers that have been a bit weaker. Certainly the, the numbers that directly go into GDP have been on the softer side as well. Consumer spending in particular has slowed down since March. I mean, certainly retail sales surged in March uh, when you had the last stimulus payment, and they've kind of flattened out, even declined a little bit since, since then. Now, there's some supply issues for sure with autos, but it does look like the boost from fiscal stimulus has, has peaked. So we, we have been counting on slowing going forward, but it looked like third quarter slowed a bit faster than we thought. So we did just mark down our Q3 number to 4% from 7%. Now we still have 4% for the fourth quarter for this is GDP. And, but that does result in 2021 being cut to, to 5.2% on a Q4 to Q4 basis from 6%. So yes, we have cut our 2021 numbers. And again, I think part of this is, is clearly Delta and the COVID wave. I think that's part of what's going on. But part of it is the inevitable fading of fiscal stimulus. And fiscal stimulus is, is poised to fade to the point of policy being contractionary on a change basis in 2022. Although there is this question of a record number of job openings, and we'll get another read on that tomorrow with the Jolts data, the job openings uh, figures. Why are we not seeing more people enter the labor force, especially as we get the roll off of these enhanced jobless benefits? I don't understand. And I think that a lot of people are asking, what if there's something else going on and they're being replaced by technology or companies are finding other solutions? Um, well, I mean, that's the big question, of course, and there's been a lot of debate, and it's been a political debate, of course, over how much of the weakness on the supply side, the, the, the net drop of the participation rate, has been because of overly generous unemployment benefits. And I mean, we, we certainly think that's been a factor. I think COVID is still a factor. People, a lot of people don't want to go back to work because of, because of COVID, and COVID has caused issues with, with getting childcare. And in addition, there was a lot of stimulus. I think a lot of people are not as in need of a, a job immediately because of all the accumulated savings from the stimulus as well. Now, that doesn't apply to everyone, of course, but there have been a number of factors. And I mean, as you say, the, the unemployment benefits are expiring this week. I mean, some states already saw them expire. There's a lot of talk about how it's not clear that even in those states where the benefits already expired, that there was a sudden surge in supply of labor. But it's hard to really disentangle that from all the other effects. I mean, we do expect as time goes on, the supply side will come on more and more. We don't think the participation rate is going to stay as low as it is right now. Mm. And meanwhile, on the demand side, we do think things are starting to start to cool a bit. So, I mean, some of these imbalances, I think, will will resolve over time. But yes, there yeah. is still strong demand for, for labor. And that would argue that we should continue to get reasonably strong employment numbers going forward. So put it all together, Jim, and how different for the equation, how different is the equation for the Fed this morning than it was at this time on Friday? Um, I think it certainly keeps the debate going. I mean, our view is, I mean, they, of course, their signal has been that the taper is going to come this year. And of course, there are three meetings left this year. Now, our interpretation of that has been, it's not September. Just the wording has not been urgent enough that it's been either November or December. I think that's still the case. Our view has been December. I think to the extent you're getting weaker numbers here, including payrolls, including the downgraded Q3 GDP numbers, I think that helps the case for holding off a bit more till December. And obviously, we'll get another employment report before the before the uh, November meeting. Um, but we think that it doesn't stop them from tapering. I mean, obviously, if the economy was truly collapsing and you were seeing zero growth, that's a different story. But if you're getting kind of 4% type GDP growth, and unemployment is still coming down. You look at numbers like the ISM indexes, they're still around 60, jobless claims are falling. I think there's enough improvement, substantial improvement for them to move ahead with tapering. Now, the tightening question, the rate hike question, of course, is completely different. Yep. And to the extent momentum is down in 2022, I think that would argue for being patient once tapering does conclude in late 22, presumably, 
that they're going to sit back for a while before they actually raise rates. Hey, Jim, good to catch up. As always, Jim O'Sullivan there, TD Securities Chief, U.S. Macro Strategist. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.